Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Clinic Talks production. The simple solution for PM&R healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physiatrist in PM&R at Mayo Clinic. 20% or 50 million adults in the U.S. suffer from some form of chronic pain. The most common sources are low back pain, headache, and chronic joint pain. As physiatrists, we see many of these patients for these conditions. Today, we're joined by Dr. Thomas Pitico, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and a physiatrist who's fellowship trained in pain medicine and works in our spine center. Thanks for joining us today, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. We typically think of pain management as injections, medications, but there's a lot of new technology coming out to help folks with chronic pain. Can you tell us a few of these? Yeah, so I always try to educate my patients on the the concepts of what is pain. And then when we talk about treatment paradigms, looking at sort of different options moving forward, it really does try to encompass a multimodal approach. So some of the new technologies or sort of procedural aspects that we talk about, uh, you know, look at different parts of uh, injection therapies and some other options looking at therapies including spinal cord stimulation and intrathecal drug delivery. Again, those are on the higher end. Other sort of more commonplace, very routine medical procedures that we offer folks for chronic pain, particularly cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine pain, is uh, concepts of radiofrequency ablation or uses thermal energy to kind of ablate the sensory nerves of the spine, knowing that full well these nerves do regenerate and regrow because they're peripheral nerves. But typically the, the people get good pain relief for up to six to nine months. You know, you, you mentioned spinal cord stimulators, and those have come a long way in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about those. Yeah, so spinal cord stimulation has actually been around for a number of decades. And truly, they were first placed intrathecally, so inside the spinal canal, inadvertently. That first patient did not do well. Uh, But at at the end of the day, over the last two decades for sure, there's been a real resurgence in interest in trying to understand the mechanisms. Uh, I'll be honest. At the end of the day, there's a lot of theories out there about how it works. What we do know is that it does work. And particularly the technology is looking at different waveforms. So how do we change the electricity to the spinal cord, particularly the sort of pain pathways of the spinal cord, to be able to help patients live better, feel better, move better? Those are usually the words I use to these patients to be able to talk to them about different options. So the the different sort of waveforms we look at is trying to change the different parameters of stimulation. So whether that's the frequency of the electrical impulses or the duration of the impulses themselves or, or sort of the, you know, the amplitude, or the intensity of these things. So all of these are, are manipulated. And, of course, in the medical world, people are always interested in different aspects of how, how theirs is better. Suffice it to say, we know spinal cord stimulation works, particularly for certain pain indications, such as folks that have had previous back surgery or, or previous laminectomies who have chronic low back pain or, or leg and uh, arm pain, or particularly leg pain. Um, so that's kind of that failed back surgery syndrome population where we have some of the greatest sort of randomized control data looking at outcomes for stimulation. Uh, certainly folks that have chronic neuropathic pain, such as complex regional pain syndrome, also um, have, have great outcomes with this. When we talk about the different aspects of neuromodulation or spinal cord stimulation, we look at sort of the different the different applications of this to the spinal cord. So much like I say to patients, you, you may have friends that have uh, cardiac pacemaker, right? That, that kind of helps tell the heart what to do. Well, these, these stimulators basically tell the pain signals what to do and what not to do as they get sent up to the brain and the, and the pain interpretation centers. 
So at the end of the day, whether we're going to look more at what we call a traditional or paresthesia-based spinal cord stimulator, or there's some newer technologies that are looking at higher frequency, so sub-thresholds or sub-perception uh, stimulation uh, paradigms, uh, and then there's also ones that try to really mimic the normal neurologic impulses that are being sent in, in sort of trains of impulses or bursts, we call it. There's, so there's many different companies out there in the market right now. We're, we're definitely well into the, you know, uh, almost 10 different companies. Uh, there, there's kind of more four to five big ones that we typically will use, though, for patients. Um, but there's a lot of exciting innovation happening every, every day. You know, I recently saw a presentation on a peripheral nerve stimulator. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about those. Again, it's, it's applying a more focal technology in sort of a, a least invasive way. And again, that's what we're always trying to help patients find ways to be able to live better, feel better, move better. So where there is a sort of a peripheral neuropathy or an isolated mononeuropathy, sometimes it can be very effective. There's some emerging literature, particularly uh, in the peripheral uh, nerve stimulator field, again, looking at in the, in the old days, just 15 t years ago or so, we would, we would put the big systems, these big sort of leads that would be placed in the epidural space and large batteries sort of inside the people's body, but it would have to be sutured down right to these little uh, small nerves, whether that's in the arms or shoulders or legs. But as you can imagine, that was very cumbersome, trying to find places where there, there were, weren't wires moving over joints because lead migration continues to be a big risk. Some of the newer technologies looking at peripheral nerve stimulation are really trying to be very specific. So having a smaller footprint, but using the same technology to be able to apply direct focal electricity to right to that nerve that's of, of dysfunction or that's having some uh, areas. And particularly area of interesting research really is, is folks with post-stroke shoulder pain. Yeah. There's, some good, there's some good data uh, out of colleagues um, in Cleveland that are really showing that there's been some meaningful, impactful, uh, both improvements in function as well as quality of life for using sort of focal peripheral nerve stimulator, again, a small footprint. It's a small little lead that's only a few inches long that gets implanted under the skin. And then patients actually wear uh, what they call an, an EPG, or an external pulse generator. That communicates with that lead under the skin to be able to tell sort of the, the wire what it should be doing to the nerves. Most of that also, the exciting part, is that it uses very small energy amounts. And so then these batteries tend to have a little bit longer longevity. Wow, so the whole stimulator unit is outside the body and no longer implanted. Correct, the, the battery yeah. itself. There are implantable wires that need to go inside the body, sure. but again, different technologies. Some are only there for 60 days. Some get implanted for, you know, months. But the, the, the real neat aspect is that much of this is actually reversible therapy, and that's what I tell my patients. From how we do it as, as a pain clinician, it's all done percutaneously. So we're not cutting, slicing, dicing too much of the spine. We're really trying to be very focused at, by placing small needles by the nerves or just inside the spinal canal. If things are going well, uh, I've had patients over the years where I, we go back to the OR, we open up the wound and pull everything out because the patients have found a, another meaningful way to be able to achieve a quality of life or that stimulator has really helped them overcome that chronic pain signaling pathway that we're really trying to treat. And that's, the, that's a real exciting part about the sort of pain aspects. Now, again, some stimulators are placed surgically by surgeons that require laminotomy and, and direct visualization of the spinal canal. Uh, in that situation, those are usually less reversible because it does require a bigger spine surgery. So I take it these peripheral nerve stimulators are placed by guidance uh, ultrasound? Typically, yeah, the vast majority are placed ultras, uh, ultrasound guided, again, because you can get that direct visualization. 
Uh, oftentimes we use fluoroscopy just to confirm, you know, to make sure that, again, sometimes it's helpful to always document what's, what's being done. But uh, the vast majority of these are being placed per, uh, percutaneously via ultrasound guidance. Excellent. You know, the big, the big hot topic now is opioids. I mean, you know, everybody's talking about a crisis, yeah. uh, a new crisis, but it, it's been there for a while. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME, offering on-demand medical education and a wide variety of specialties. This includes the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Online Board Review Course. Enter your boards with confidence, whether it's your first time through or for recertification. Learn on your own time and earn credit. Register today at ce.mayo.edu slash online. What are the current recommendations for the use of opioids in, in acute pain? Well, I think this is, as you say, whether we're going to call it a crisis, uh, epidemic, we have a problem, clearly. And, and I think it's hard to hang your hat on one specific incident, although many people sort of cite this one paper back in the late 80s as being the real nidus for where we are today. I think at the end of the day, the, the real challenge begets us as clinicians to be able to help educate our patients better on what is pain, where are they at in the stages of pain, and really trying to help mitigate longer-term consequences. As you alluded to, you know, we have millions of Americans living in, in just this country alone that are dealing with, with real difficult issues every day. And I, and I want to remind our listeners that pain is, is a sort of sensory and emotional experience because pain, as we know, is real, and it can happen from real tissue damage or non-real tissue damage. So how do we treat that? Again, I always advocate a multimodal approach. And when we talk about opioids, there is some good data that we have now, particularly put forth by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, the guidelines that came out in 2016. So I advocate uh, trying to use that as a tool in your toolbox as you talk to patients about use of opioids. Now, in, a, in acute pain, uh, certainly perioperative setting, opioids work well. And I think that when you talk to a pain specialist, it's a real challenging issue to be able to, to balance this because I'm the first person to advocate for the use of opioids. I think they're fantastic medicine and we know they work. The problem becomes how long, the right person, the right situation. And so that, that begets the, the, the bigger scope of the problem. You know, and, and we see, I, I feel for my colleagues on the front lines of medicine who are seeing you know, many patients a day are stuck with 10-minute visits and don't have the real opportunity to explore sort of the, the multi-aspect um, reasons for people's pain presentations. And, and so that, that becomes a real challenge. And it's the easiest thing to do is just to write a prescription for patients. But it, at the end of the day, trying to tease out what's going to be the best for the patient, uh, trying to use opioids appropriately. And again, that's where the CDC guidelines have really come into play. They really do suggest that we try to target patients less than 50 oral morphine equivalents per day. If we're going to go above that, you need real strict documentation, really trying to document as far as how does that improve their physical performance, their physical functioning, their vocational habits, their, their educational needs. You know, because again, do I prescribe chronic opioids for patients? Absolutely. I think it's a great medicine. But trying to find that patient, uh, the right patient for the right scenario is really important. The, the guidelines also then really advocate not going above 90 oral morphine equivalents per day. And the reason for that is above 90, that's really where we start to see the turning point of real serious, i.e. death, 
outcomes become a key component. Uh, and again, this is really what we're trying to, to reduce this, this harm or these, these real risks associated with opioids. And so for sure, for, particularly for many of my patients, uh, for the, the sort of non-cancer pain world, the kind of chronic pain world, um, I, I just have a very honest conversation. It does take some time, but the focus really is on this is what the government guidelines have set forth for us, and, and the, fo the focus is on trying to find the optimal dosing regimen with opioids, particularly non-opioid adjuvants, whether that's an injection or some physical therapies, or really trying to help find that person get motivated towards a goal. So what are some of, you, you've mentioned a few, what other alternatives are there to opioid medications right now? Yeah, and, and so many of my great mentors here at Mayo Clinic have shared with me over the years that there, there's sort of five things that we're stuck with in the pain world. There's therapies of, of various sorts, there, there are some medication options, and again, I really try to reach for non-opioid adjuvants. And so that may be things simple like gabapentin or pregabalin, or that may be some other, the other options like duloxetine for muscle pain syndromes or neuropathic pain syndromes. So those are usually my top two medicines that I'll, I'll go for. It's kind of the non-opioid adjuvant group. Certainly there are some other second and third line um, calcium channel blockers and a few other anti-epileptic medicines that we can, we can consider. But beyond that, injection therapies certainly are, are play a huge role in this to try to, again, mitigate that sort of uh, flare of pain. Uh, it never really gets rid of their pain. I think that's the other huge component of this. And I'm very honest with patients. We probably won't be able to fix their problem, particularly when we're talking about patients that are six months out from an injury or, or are still dealing with an issue. My goal is to provide them a sense of hope and, and a sense of uh, passion to be able to get back and reengage in life. You know, beyond that, the advanced interventions that we talked about, some, some intrathecal drug delivery or pain pumps, spinal cord stimulators, sometimes surgery if it's indicated, right? And I always I want to advocate to our listeners, it's, it's always good to be that comprehensive physician when you can to be able to provide great care. And the sixth thing, which we never talk about, which is why we see patients every day, is, is basically do nothing. But that's why they're here. We want to try to help them the best we can. You know, you mentioned injections, and one of the things I always waffle with is Somebody comes in with a lumbar radiculopathy. You want to do an injection, transforaminal or interlaminar? What's what's the best so, option? You know, and and certainly, um, as anyone who's read the medical literature knows, there's a lot of controversy over this. I think at the end of the day, the, the goal is to try to be specific about the indication. So if you have some real focal pathology that you're seeing on a lumbar MRI that's very indicative of sort of a, a root irritation and it's very focal, you know, then I think there's some advocacy from, from many uh, large organizations that really would say a transforaminal approach. Be very focused, be very specific. The theory behind a transforaminal is that it tends to get the medicine more towards that sort of anterior compartment of the spinal canal and as well focused towards that neural root. Certainly whether you have some disc uh, hypersensitivity from some of the sinovertebral nerves or, or whether that's just kind of the, the irritated milieu of where that nerve root's being pinched. The thought being being very focused and depositing medicine into the transforaminal uh, region, getting some ventral epidural spread, really helps to kind of calm some of those radicular uh, components or radiculitis uh, symptoms. An interlaminar approach, again, is a little bit more posterior. It's a little more general. Now, again, there's been some more recent studies that have shown that there's no difference in outcomes. The, the goal really is to try to help reduce pain for these patients, get them into some active therapy programs, really kind of re-engaging in life. And that's, again, when you look at sort of the data on epidural steroids in general, I think the, the biggest complaint is that, well, it doesn't fix things for people. 
you know, and, and so the outcomes we look at sometimes are shorter term. But I would argue that, you know, when you look at the, the body of evidence from rehabilitation in general, the goal we know is get people moving active more quickly, more, more safely, sooner. You know, this is contrary to the mantra many, you know, decades ago where it was bed rest. It was relax, take it easy. So we're really trying to be more aggressive in getting these patients back into an active life. Uh, at the end of the day, I think it's a clinical decision. Uh, I, I will tell you in our practice, we do both every single day. Uh, it usually depends either on sort of the, the diagnostician that they're seeing in the clinic and the referring patterns of, of the providers. But uh, you tend to sort of see sometimes if one doesn't work, we'll try the other, you know? Mm-hmm. You mentioned that um, there's some studies out that question the efficacy of, of uh, you know, epidural steroid mm-hmm. injections. Um, do you ever use them in isolation where that's all you'll do for a patient is a injection? Yeah. So, so typically, that's I try to advocate, again, we particularly in, in today's society, many people are looking for that quick fix. And so whether that's a pain pill, like an opioid, or whether that's an injection, you know, the goal is to try to find sort of the, the least obtrusive way forward for these folks. And so I definitely advocate early on for sort of an injection therapy, particularly if it's interrupting their life, i.e. Their, their sleep is a big one. So if people are having a hard time sleeping at night, we know that they're not going to be functioning at their top game the next day. And then when you set up this pattern over time, it can be really challenging. So seeing people early, catching these things early, providing an early intervention can be very helpful. Now, you and I both know we, we see many patients that are well down that road and have been dealing with pain for many years. So I think trying to balance all of that, right? And again, the, the more complex patients we're seeing these days, sometimes that answer is not as easy. You know, so if you're talking about a, an 80-year-old who has bad lumbar central canal stenosis uh, and, and the ideal gold standard, as we all know, is a decompression, but they may not be an operative candidate, you know, then I do see some, some true sort of chronic benefits from intermittent uh, epidural steroid injections. You know, now, again, we're pretty conservative, so we really try to advocate no more than about three to four a year. But that also includes when they see other specialists for shoulder joints, hand joints, knee joints, hip joints. So, you know, we really try to sort of look at that whole person to, to really minimize those side effects from chronic steroid therapy. You mentioned also chronic pain. One of the, one of the things I have a difficult time discussing and explaining to somebody is, what is chronic pain? Mm-hmm. Tell me how you counsel your patients on that. You know, and I've, I've worked on this over the years because I think it's, a, it's an evolving conversation. You know, we know acute pain exists to protect people. That, that is a, a natural inherent part of being a human being. And, and that really is important for our survival and has been for many, many millennia. That being said, what transitions, particularly at, at the sort of neurologic level, that there is a, a neurobiologic difference between acute pain and chronic pain. And, and there's many different factors that go into how that changes. Suffice it to say, chronic pain is a maladaptive process. So what I say to patients is, you know, at the end of the day, you have a real reason for pain. I believe you, right? And I think part of that validation is important for folks. But there also needs to be, and we're still going to continue to work on trying to help you live better, feel better, move better. Chronic pain is, is an abnormality and, and sort of a hypersensitivity of the peripheral and central nervous system, such that there are changes that happen in the somatosensory cortex and limbic systems particularly, you know, that, that goes to speaking to that physical and, and emotional component of pain. And I kind of use the example of there's it's like a four-lane highway. You know, so folks that live in big cities understand that you have to have traffic flowing both ways because when one, one side of the, the highway is shut down, 
you know, it becomes even more congested and things just are not flowing well. And so that highway of network and neurons between our brain and sort of the periphery gets, gets sort of interrupted or, or, or something happens to one of those lanes, particularly the sort of what we call the descending pathways, such that, you know, when, when people are not, you have lots of input, input, input over and over again, such that you get so sensitized, but there's not the normal processes, the normal outflow of traffic that those other lanes need to say, okay, but it's all right. You still can function. You can still live your life. And so that imbalance of communication between what your body's telling you and what actually should be happening is really what leads to chronic pain. In actuality, it's probably a lot more complex than that. But suffice it to say, what I, what I tell patients is it, it's normal, it, it's unfortunate, uh, and it's potentially correctable. We do see that there are plastic changes both in the, the central as well as peripheral system that do occur as we really structure programs for patients to try to overcome and master sort of the, the management aspects of chronic pain. Thank you. You've just changed the way I'm going to tell my patients about chronic pain. When do you refer patients to a pain rehab program? So we're, we're really fortunate to have a, a comprehensive pain rehab program, and, and more and more are, are popping up over the country. A pain rehab program, as I explained to patients, is really a, a dedicated, focused way to help them regain a sense of control in their life. That's the biggest problem we see with chronic pain patients is that they just don't have that control they're looking for. So through that multimodal approach, looking at you know some, some physicians and some psychologists and, and then very dedicated, very dedicated therapists, whether it's occupational therapists, physical therapists, vocational therapists, to try to help maximize function, the, the key and the secret to almost all pain rehab programs is it's kind of like the movie Fight Club, right? The first rule is you don't talk about it. We don't talk about pain. And, and many times people, people joke with me because, I, again, with many of my patients, I don't even bring up the pain word. They're there to see me because they know I know they're in pain. But we really try to focus more on those things that they do have control over. And that's the, the real structured aspect of a chronic pain program. Helps that individual person develop a plan in sort of a team-based approach Sometimes it's using medicines, sometimes it's tapering down certain medicines, particularly opioids, benzodiazepines, muscle relaxants, to be able to sort of say, you know what, I can do this. I'm not going to let this interrupt my life moving forward. And that, that sort of concerted effort of that subspecialty group in that interdisciplinary fashion really is what makes a program successful. We've been talking about pain management with Dr. Thomas Pitico, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and a physician in the Pain Clinic and Spine Center. Thanks for your time. Oh, absolutely. Tom. Thanks so much for Fantastic. having me. Fantastic. Are you a physiatrist preparing for your upcoming PM&R Part 2 oral boards? Do you need to brush up on your examination skills? Through a combination of didactic lecture, case vignettes, optional mock oral examinations, and online modules, the PM&R board review course can help guide your preparation. This vital course will be held on the historic Mayo Clinic campus in downtown Rochester, Minnesota every spring just prior to the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation oral examinations. For complete course information and to receive an email when registration is open, visit ce.mayo.edu slash PMR.